Hello, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there. Thank you for joining me for episode 97 of Misfits and Rejects. In this episode, I sat down with Rick Williams, a retired lifeguard from the North Shore of Hawaii, who was a lifeguard for 34 years and has just really lived a cool life, ran away from home when he was 15. And you really can hear his step-by-step process he took in order to be where he's at today. He's retired, has a beautiful property overlooking the North Shore in Hawaii. And I just thought it was really cool. I've known him for a long time. And I get to just hear these stories about what it was like for him in the 60s and 70s doing his own thing as a young man in Hawaii. And I just found some of them to be tremendously inspirational and motivational for where I'm at in life and where I'm heading to next. You know, as many of you know, if you're a regular listener, I'm moving back to Thailand. Um, I've saved up about $7,000 and I'm going over there and, and trying to make this life as a digital nomad work for myself where I make money primarily online from the various businesses that I've created online. You know, I have a surf consulting business where people send me their surf footage and I make little instructional videos for them. I have a surf course that I've created. It's a nine module surf course that I will be promoting from now until forever, you know, hopefully helping people get to that next level. Um, I have this podcast. I also have my surf retreats that I host around the world as well. So I have a lot of different things in the fire that I'm trying to generate more income from. Some of them hopefully will be more passive income to help just perpetuate this lifestyle that I really want, which is to be location independent from work. You know, I don't want to have to come back to America anymore and make money. I don't want to have to stay in one place in Nicaragua where I've been for the better part of the last 13 years to make my money. I'd like to be mobile. I'd like to pull out my computer, you know, work four to six hours a day and generate an income like that. So I hope you'll follow me on my adventures. You can follow me on Instagram uh, at Misfits and Rejects. You can support Misfits and Rejects on Patreon if you would like to make a monthly monetary donation. That's awesome, very helpful, but not expected. Patreon's a platform for content creators like myself to have fans just support them along their journey. So by donating $1, $3, $5 a month, whatever you want is super helpful, but again, not expected. Um, By just sharing Misfits and Rejects, you know, pulling out your, your phone right now, hitting subscribe. That's huge help. You know, making a comment on whatever podcast player you're listening to or listening to Misfits and Rejects on is also really big help for me and helps me within just podcast rankings and whatnot. And I hope that these stories and and my lifestyle that I'm trying to design hopefully inspire you to take that next step if you're in a life situation that you're not fulfilled by and go out there and start trying to design it in the way you want. So with that said, I hope you enjoy this episode with Rick Williams. He's a really rad dude, lived a very cool, interesting life as a North Shore lifeguard at Pipeline, the world-famous Pipeline, one of the scariest, gnarliest waves in the world, and just has some really cool stories that I think will be very entertaining to you for the next 60 minutes. One thing to note is that we did the interview outside, so there's a lot of background noise. I tried to minimize it, but it is there, so... Just be aware that, you know, we were sitting out in the backyard having a, a conversation. So there's some dogs barking, a few airplanes go over, and it's very authentic. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. 
really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I am sitting with Rick Williams, a good friend, I guess technically a cousin now. By we're marriage. actually related. We're actually related. Legendary North Shore lifeguard. Retired some, Retired. Somebody who uh, ventured out at a very young age, ran away from home to design his life in the way he did. He's 60 years old and somebody who I've drawn a lot of cool inspiration from over the years we've known each other. He's still traveling to Mexico via Tijuana to go surf cool waves and just lives an interesting life. So I thought I'd bring him on and hopefully he can share something that you can relate to. So Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to have you, bud. Um, Rick and I cross paths, what, maybe once a year if we're lucky, um, passing through California, maybe at the same time. And uh, we share a few stories, a few beers, and then say our, say our goodbye. So I have about two hours with Rick. <laughs> and he's here just to kind of let us know, like, um, I guess we can start. Where'd you grow up, Rick? Grew up in Hermosa Beach. LA. About 30 miles north of here. Yeah? Yeah. And then you... I mean, you ran away. Like, what was your childhood like? Was it, like, um, turbulent? I mean, what was the motivation to, like, head, no, up, head to Hawaii? No, believe it or not, my childhood was great. You know, I lived, I grew up three blocks from the beach. I started surfing uh, when I was seven years old. Uh, learned to snow ski when I was five years old. I learned to swim, I think, when I was six. Um, had... You know, we used to go to Big Bear Lake and ski and ride motorcycles and fish and go occasionally get to go and surf Malibu, surf Huntington or Trestles. And, um, you know, Chris's mom, they grew up in San Clemente. We used to go down there actually quite a bit and surf Riviera. And uh, um, occasionally we'd go into San Onofre, and that's, that's where um, Chris's grandfather, Uncle Tom, taught me how to surf. When I was six. And that was in the 60s? That would have been 1963. Nice. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, so it sounds like you had a very active uh, childhood growing up by the beach. And then, I mean, the story that always stands out, like I just mentioned, is like you, you decide, screw this, I'm out of here, I'm, I'm running away to Hawaii at, what, 15? At 15 and a half, yeah. And I had been, um, let's see, I started working, I think when I was like 12 or 13, I started working in the surf shop on Pacific Coast Highway for Petrillo Surfboards. And uh, they had me just like sweeping the shop out and polishing the surfboards and the racks. And then um, they put me to work behind the counter. They had me actually selling retail clothing and surfboards when I was like 14 years old or something. And um then they taught me to do ding repair, and they had me fixing dings out in the back, and then I was still working in the front. And were you in school? So, like, were you going to yeah, high school? I was school? going to Maricosta High School. And, and so, um, 15-year-old, that makes you like a freshman or a sophomore. Um, yeah, and initially. Um, and so then I started working at Redondo Chart House, and uh, um, was making money, and I was living at home with my parents and my brother and just saving up money. And, um, pretty soon I had like squirreled away about 1500 bucks. And so at, there came a time when, um, several of my buddies who were in my age group, um, had gone to the North shore and, and stayed because one guy had an older brother that was there. And so they, they ended up staying with him and, uh, 
I'm going to backtrack for a second. Um, anybody involved in the surfing world has probably heard of a guy named Leroy Granis, who passed away about five years ago, who was the, um, in the 50s and 60s, was like the premier surf photographer and documented the, the you know, the really the, like the heyday of, uh, of uh, performance surfing, you know, in the early um High performance longboards came out and then the transition into shorter boards and mini guns in Hawaii. And Leroy was there on hand to document all that. Also took the majority of the photos in the very first surfer magazine, which came out, I believe, in 1960. And is this a gentleman you went and stayed with? No, I grew up with his son. <clears throat> I see. Yeah. And so these buddies of mine had gotten the opportunity, Leroy and his wife, and, and they would drag their whole family over to the North Shore for two months every winter from Hermosa. Like, they literally lived right around the corner from me. And um, so John and I were good friends growing up. And uh, so these three guys, it was um, Eddie Gay, Scotty Hoadby, and this other guy, Jimmy Brooks, who had, had, and this is, I'm going to say around 72 um, was considered to be probably the second best surfer in California. And, and okay, this is my opinion. Um, the number one surfer at that time was probably Mike Purpose, who was also from Hermosa. And these guys were just, um, this was really, um, short boards had only been out for a couple of two or three years. And these guys were like already into like high performance surfing and, and just like speed surfing and barrel riding and stuff. And, so, um, Jimmy Brooks and I were good friends. We were surfing together a lot. The next thing I know, he's gone and he's living, uh, with these other guys in Hawaii. And I had been to Hawaii one time already the year before with my parents and my brother went and we stayed on Kauai. So I knew what it was all about and I knew the quality of the waves. And so, um, so I'm working at Chart House. I saved up all this money and then, um, kind of just decided, oh, I want to go to the Hawaii. I want to move to Hawaii. And then I, I think I ran it past my parents, and they just started laughing. They're like, oh, you're not going anywhere until you're 18, you know. And so, um, and a typical teenager, you know, we were having kind of up-and-down relationship. And, and I was very independent, you know, because I was working, and I had a good work ethic, and I was getting good grades in school. And I just decided one day, it's like, I'm just going to go to Hawaii. And that was it. But if it hadn't been for John Granis and my other buddies having been there previously, uh, I may not have jumped on it. But because I had connections, I had somebody there. And uh, It's like in those days, so what would you do? You just went to the airport and bought a ticket? You'd go to the airport and, and buy a ticket with cash, and you didn't have to show an ID. And, uh, and it's interesting because I had to run away twice because the first time I was caught by the police at Honolulu airport because my parents knew that, that I'd gotten on a plane. And, um, so, and my parents, uh, to, I guess to try and teach me a lesson or whatever they say had the, uh, police. Um, and, and, you know, I think thinking about it, technically I, they couldn't just send me back right away, right? Because the cops aren't going to pay for my plane ticket in Honolulu to get back to California. So they had to throw me in the juvenile detention center in uh, Honolulu with a bunch of locals. And uh, I was the only white guy there. And 
like 30 or 40 other kids. And what was that like? <laughs> it was gnarly, but it was actually kind of fun too because I had I, I learned and I, and I already knew right away that there's these, the racial situation in Hawaii in the 70s was heavy and that you could get pounded out any moment if you weren't cool and if you were being an, an asshole. And uh, so I just basically went in there and kept my mouth shut and I let those guys do all the talking and, and you know, and, and after a few days, they've kind of warmed up to me and they're like, hey, holy boy, come over here, sit with us, you know, and then, and then after a few days, like, and it's like somebody had some weed at one point, we're smoking a joint and I'm, and I'm in jail literally for like two weeks with these other juveniles and so finally one day then then some detective shows up and he's like hey williams you're gonna it's time to go you're going back home and so he took me to the airport and he had some other business to attend to so he left me with some security guy at the airport well the security guy turned his back and i bolted and then fucking ran out into the and then by then it was nighttime too and um went out this door and I was out like literally like out in the fucking runway out where the people are working with the luggage guys and all the people that tend to the planes and stuff and I'm like all of a sudden I'm out there and I'm like how do I get out of here you know and I'm like it was like it's like I was escaping from prison kind of thing and um, and what, but somebody spotted me, you know, they're like, Hey kid, what are you doing out here? You know? And then, the, then the security guy got onto it and he's like, Oh fuck, I'm looking for that kid. And they start chasing me and, and it was raining and I was like running as fast as I could to try and get away from these guys. And I had like four or five guys chasing me down and, and finally they caught me and then they put me on the plane and sent me back home and got back to Hermosa. And, and it was just weird. Just the whole vibe was weird with my parents and, uh, had, um, basically had enough of it after about three or four weeks i ran away again but the second time i left and i did it a little more it was a little more clandestine and went to the airport and used a fake name um and my alias at that time was tyler sims and uh got on the plane and got to honolulu and went straight to maui because I knew they wouldn't look for me over there. And so I went to Maui and stayed for a month because I had another one of my buddies who had just moved over there. And he and these other two guys from the South Bay were living on Maui. So stayed over there for about a month and then came back to Oahu, the North Shore, and, and found my, my buddy Jimmy Brooks and hooked up with him. Went straight to V-Land where he was living and... Uh, um, and within an hour, had um, got a surfboard in my hand, and we're paddling out of V-Land, and it was awesome. What size was the board? Oh, seven four, something seven six. You know, they back in the seventies, like the the short boards were like more like between seven and eight feet. Like no, there was nobody <clears> running like six foot boards back then, and. Uh, did, so, did you have to buy it off him? Was he loaning you a board? Like, uh, what was your financial I, situation like at this point? Um, well, I had money and I had I didn't have a board because I just jumped on a plane with a backpack basically and um, rode the city bus out to the North Shore and, and tracked him down. I was able to track him down within about two hours and uh, showed up at his door and then and he just was, I don't know, it was his board or his roommate's board, somebody's board. I just paddled out on it and um, but a couple of days later, 
we went over to someone's house and um, there was uh, a bunch of boards like shoveled under this house that were kind of beat up, thrashing thrash boards. And, and I pulled this one out and I was looking at it and it was like, you know, it was well used, but it was still in pretty decent shape. And, and, and I was, was looking at the board and I was like, hey, do you, anybody, you know, whose board is this? Do you guys want to sell it? And he's like, oh, yeah, fucking 15 bucks. So I bought the seven four Joe Blair for like fifteen bucks and did some ding repair on it and got it spruced up and and I rode that board for ended up riding it for about two years, but in the meantime, um, uh, I took that board to Kauai. Okay, just Brooks and I we went. It was it was springtime when I got to the North Shore. It was like this April of nineteen seventy four, and. Um, and we surfed for a few weeks and surfing at Sunset Point and V-Land and Rockies and Camiland. And, um, and then it went flat. And then Brooks is like, summertime, there's no more waves. We're going to have to, um, uh, we're going to go to Kauai in a few weeks. And I was like, okay. So, and I'd already been to Kauai, so I knew what that was all about. And um, in the meantime, went to Waikiki a couple times, surfed in town and got some good waves. And then, um, uh, so then one day he's like, Let's, we're going to Kauai next week. And so, so we ended up going to Kauai, buying a car and a tent and a cooler. And we camped out on Kauai for about six or seven weeks and uh, just got into all kinds of adventures and got into a little bit of trouble and um, got some good waves. And then, and then we had this one streak where we were on the south side and there's a left uh, place called Infinities on the southwest side of Kauai, which is it's probably the longest wave in Hawaii, and it's a it's just it's just amazing reef kind of a reef point reef break, and um, and we were camping near there. We're camping at Salt Pond, and we'd break down the camp every morning, load up the car, and drive over just to Infinities, and then um, and basically surf all day. And we surfed it like 20 days in a row and it was never under head high. And it was, and, and just most of the time it was just flawless surf. Was, was there other people surfing with incredible. you? Yeah, there's locals there. And it wasn't, um, we weren't the only ones out, but, um, in 74, nobody's riding with leashes and we're all on single fins with no leashes. And the water's dirty there because there's a sugar mill nearby. And so the water, like you can't see the bottom, you can't see how shallow it is. And it's really shallow. And so if you lose your board, which inevitably you'd lose your board and you'd have to swim in and the reef's shallow and you're trying not to kick the reef or step on Vana or whatever. And so um, get um, get your board back, paddle back out. But the, the waves were just incredible. It was just amazing. So you're still living just off and, your savings at this point. Yeah. But they were starting to get down there, you know. We were starting to get depleted. And... and um, Had you talked to your parents? Did uh, I, oh, that, yeah, that's that. I skipped over that part. Um, when I got back to the North Shore, about two weeks after I'd been there on the North Shore, and uh, walking down the street one day, and and you'd hardly ever see cops. Like you would go weeks and weeks without seeing a cop car in the North Shore at that time, and saw a cop car, and then all of a sudden I look back, and he's turning around, right, because he spotted me, and he turns around and. He kind of pulls up behind me and he jumps out of the car. He's like, don't run. 
don't run. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to take you. I just got a message for you. And because he did, I think he knew that I was ready to bolt, right? Mm-hmm. And this big fat cop gets out. And so he just, he goes, you know, you're not in any kind of trouble or anything. Just call your parents because they're worried about you. And they, they had, I guess they had my description or whatever. They knew that I was around there. And my parents, I think they knew that I was with this, with Jimmy Brooks and these other guys. And so, um, so I called them and they're just like, well, you know, we're, we don't really approve of this, but we can't really stop you. This is what you want to do. Then you're on your own. And, uh, so then I'd, I'd call them every couple of weeks and just check in and let them know that I was doing okay. And, and um, it was pretty but country it, back there, like on the North Shore back then. It was totally different. There's hardly any tourists. Um, I mean, there was hardly any houses, right? I mean, there wasn't yeah. that many yeah, no, people living real, out there. It was very rural, and 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 the, everything. The economy at that time was dominated by sugarcane on all the islands. There were some sugar plantations, like a number of sugar plantations on each island, and so. But you know, as a Caucasian, and you're always in the minority, and there's. Hawaiians, part Hawaiians, but there's a huge contingent of, of Japanese and Filipino and Chinese that were families that were um, worked for the sugar mills. You know, sugar lasted over 200 years on in the islands, and only just last year, the the last, the final sugar mill closed down on Maui last year after over 200 years of operations, and uh, so. Things are heading in a different direction now. Um, so we anyways, we're on Kauai, and, and, uh, and the more time I'm spending with my buddy Jimmy Brooks, and who had, uh, you know, he and, he and I were really good friends, and this guy's an incredible surfer and was just doing some amazing surfing and was even, like, impressing the locals and um, was uh, just really just turned on there in the surfing. And, uh, but... He has a bad habits. He used to like to steal things. And he got us into trouble on one, like more than one occasion because he lifted some stuff. And, um, and in the back of my mind, was I'm he thinking, a klepto or was he doing it just to like raise money, like for a drug habit or something, or just like to steal? Um, I think all of those things, you know, I mean, we, you know, we, we were smoking weed and we were like, you know, we just, we weren't doing any drugs. We were just basically just smoking weed and hash and, um, and just surfing, you know, and eating. But And he had some kind of, like, he used to get money from his dad. His dad sent him a check, like, every two weeks and stuff. And he wasn't really good with managing his money. And so he'd run out at the end of the two weeks, and then he'd have to sponge off me. And, and then, you know, for a while, we were living, like, like just basically on, like, rice and peanut butter, you know, and, and if you could find mangoes or coconuts or pineapples or whatever. Then, um, so in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, I can't live with this guy much longer because it's going to turn out badly for both of us. And I don't want to be party to that. So um, we came back to Oahu. And then I started trying to figure out how to get... Um, enrolled in high school because I wanted to finish. I had to finish 12th grade because I was in 11th grade when I came over there. And, um, and these other three guys had dropped out. Like they had all gone to school at Kahuku and all three of them had dropped out because it, because it was tough. That's the whole scene at Kahuku was, uh, 
just really rough if you're a Caucasian and you're going there in the minority. And people, There's just people that come to school specifically to beat you up. And uh, so... I and I knew about that. I knew like the reputation cuckoo, and so I was like, I want to go to Wailua, and I want to get enrolled, and I want to finish twelfth grade, and then and then I'll see what happens after that. And I had no other plans other than that. So, so at one point, I called my parents because I was running out of money, and I said, Hey, I'm get I'm trying to get enrolled in school so I can finish high school, but I don't know if I can survive because I'm spent all my money this summer and. So my dad said, well, if you stay in school, I'll send you $100 a week. And this is in like 74, and around in uh, August. What did your parents do for a living? Sorry to just... Uh, my dad came out from Oklahoma <clears throat> in the 50s, early 50s, and uh, worked in the aircraft industry. He worked for uh, North American Aviation. And then my mom worked for Northrop uh, Aviation. And they, um, you know, the, the aircraft industry and, and also post-war um, like military uh, um, weapons components and a lot of stuff was being manufactured in the LA area and, um, so and my mom grew up in Hermosa Beach and so she was from there my dad came and they met and got married um, so he's sending you a hundred bucks a week which is probably a fortune so back then he sent me a hundred bucks a week which was actually enough to live on just barely mm. and so and basically, I'm like 15, 16 years old, and I'm, you know, I get enrolled in school, and I start going to Wailua High School. And Do you have I, your own car and a house, or are you renting a room somewhere? Like? Renting a room, no car, ride the bus for a dime. You could ride the school bus and the city bus for a dime. So it was easy to get around, but you could not take your surfboard on the bus. So if I wanted to go surf somewhere, I had to like hitchhike with my board. And, and I was staying in Haleiwa then. Um, because it was closer to school. So um, I, my rent, I think I was paying like 60 bucks a month in rent. I had the rest of the money for food and then um, went for a few months. And it, and it was pretty tight, you know. I mean, I was kind of struggling a little bit, but I, I was able to pull it off. And then someone said, hey, you're, you know, you're eligible for food stamps. You can go down to, to town and apply for food stamps to get food stamps. And, so I jumped on the bus one day. I went to Honolulu and went to social services, and they um, hooked me up with food stamps. And uh, um, that was like thirty-five bucks a month. And so, a um, couple months later, and and school things going good, and I had enough credits from uh, from going to Maricosta when I showed up there. I got my transcripts and. They said, well, you only have to take four classes, so you don't even need, I didn't even have to go a whole day. Like, I got, I was done with school at 12, and then I could get out, and then I had to, like, hitchhike back to Haleiwa, or walk back to Haleiwa, which is about two miles. And um, so um, we started picking puka shells. I was living next door to these people that had, um, were doing this puka shell thing. This is in the 70s, so, like, there was a, all of a sudden, and, it was like here in California, but in Hawaii, and somebody had discovered puka shells, and everybody wanted to wear puka shell necklaces, and um, because it was so symbolic of Hawaii. So, what is a puka shell? Just so the audience knows, um, what it is. it's a small uh, cone shell that's maybe like about a half inch long, and they get weathered underwater by the you know in the surf and the turbulence underwater and with the sand, and 
they wear down, and it's basically shaped like a little tiny donut that can be anywhere from like an eighth of an inch to uh, three inches across. It's, a, it's the top of cone shell. And um, so, but they have this naturally occurring hole in the center. And sometimes the hole is plugged with a grain of sand. And so you, we'd go down to this, a couple of certain beaches where the shells were plentiful and we'd go down three or four hours and pick like a jar full of shells. And then we'd go home at night and there was no TV then. There was no cable TV until around 77, I think, or 78. So we just like put some, put an album on the, on the stereo and smoke a joint and then we'd dump the shells out and just clean the shells you had to poke each one with an ice pick to get the grain of sand out and then um, then I learned how to string them you'd lay them out on a, on a big board a piece of plywood and graduated so that the shells the, the bigger shells were in the center and the smaller shells were out at either end right so it was tapered so it had this nice tapered and I would make and I was into making like the tiny shells, like the smallest shells that I could find and, and pick, and still. So, and sometimes you'd break them in half when you when you poke them with the ice pick, they'd crack. But most of the shells were sturdy enough, and you get the sand and get the hole, and then you could um, just thread it with the blind. And, and then uh, every now and then, I think we'd have to go to. Um, some store in town to buy the, the wire that we were using and to buy the little clasps that we were using to fasten them with. And so we'd make shells like three, four nights a week, make these necklaces. And then on the weekends, we'd set up a little card table out on the, at the bus stop out on where I was living in Hollywood. It was right on the highway. And then we made a sign that said Puka shells and people would st- pull over and stop and buy these necklaces for like 30 or 40 bucks each. And uh, um, and I, and I could make like two or three a week, and so pretty soon I had the stream of income coming in. You know, I was getting like maybe an extra hundred bucks or extra two hundred bucks a month from selling puka shells, and um, that's how I bought my first quiver. And back then, you could get a board made for about a hundred twenty bucks, custom board. The blanks, I don't know, blanks were like twenty five bucks, and Shaper would charge twenty five bucks, and then Glasser would glass it for like sixty bucks or something. And brand new custom board. And so I remember I got a couple boards from Joe Blair, and then I got introduced to Al Chapman, and he um, shaped me my first board in nineteen seventy five. And then and then I've been riding his boards since then. Still, yeah, I've got about thirty of them at my house. What was your wave of choice back then? Like, what was you? What were you always? Um, I was living in Haleiwa, so I was surfing a, a lot at Ali'i Beach, and um, also at Laniakea and Chun's, just because it was closer to where I was living. But I still <clears throat> had already had a taste of the uh, on the other side of Waimea at Sunset and Vland and Rockies, and hadn't really wasn't because I was uh, backside that pipe and I wasn't really that interested in it and it was had such a bad reputation um, didn't really mess around with it at first and um, so but what I about why may was that something you were passionate about no not really I don't know I wasn't drawn to it I didn't you know I wanted to surf good waves I didn't want to surf giant waves and I didn't want to get crushed and so 
<laughs> yeah, some people are really drawn to it, and they want to surf the biggest possible waves they can find, and that wasn't me, so um, I was content to surf all the other spots. And uh, But a lot of Haleiwa and a lot of Laniakea because it was closer to home. Did you finish high school? I did, just barely. And it was funny because uh, at one point the waves, the waves got really good for about two months straight in 74, like November and December and January 75. And the waves were just super good every day. And so there was a lot of days when I just decided not to go to school. And so one day the counselor, Mr. Yamato, called me into his office. And this is about midway through the school year. And he's like, hey, Williams, you know, um, first of all, I know that you don't live with your parents and you don't even live with your guardian. And, uh, and so I was like, oh, okay, well, that's, this may not end well. And, uh, and so he said, and, uh, and also I know that the waves have been really good lately. And so I, and I kind of cracked a smile and I'm like, yeah, okay, where are we going with this? And he's like, okay, well, you, if you don't start coming to school at least three days a week, then you're not going to graduate. And he just laid that out there and I said, okay, well, it's, I'll try my best, you know. Mm-hmm. So then I started coming to school a little bit more often and just, and just to barely, you know, my grades, I was getting, getting C's, you know, and just barely going in, in class just enough to, to, um, to squeak by. And, um, and in the end I graduated and I made a lot of really great friends and, um, had a really good cultural experience and and you know just like that whole year being on my own living with strangers having to buy my own food and cook my own food and learn how to cook rice and having to do my own dishes and do my own laundry and get or figure out how to get around and how to treat people so that they would treat you nice and and um it was a real eye opener for me, and, and it was just it was like boot camp in life, basically. You know, going to the North Shore, and and I, looking back on it, I would not have wanted it any other way. You know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't change anything that happened during that year's time when I was in high school there. I mean, you never left, right? I mean, you've been there ever since. I've been there for forty-five years. So then, what happened after high school? I mean, what was? What, did you have big I ideas? Got a job. Like, I got a job and a car, and then I started going to work. What did that? Like, what job did you get? What'd you do? Um, working in restaurants. I worked at Pizza Hut in Wahiwa, and it was a night, like evening time, nighttime job. So I could surf all day, and then go to work at night, and then um, uh, got this delivery job. And we worked for this deli up in Wahiwa, and we were delivering sandwiches onto the army base at Schofield. And, um, and making good money too. And, um, then, um, I don't know if any of your listeners are aware of what was going on in Hawaii in this, in the seventies. Um, there was a, um, an influx of something called tie sticks. And, uh, I managed to, um, I just uh, threw, oh, through one of my classmates in high school, actually, and he was living with these guys from Laguna who were involved in the uh, Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And 
they were importing tie sticks. Let's talk about the Brotherhood real quick, because the Brotherhood is what, so the audience knows what that is. Um, was a group of enlightened people. Living in Laguna Beach, right? I think that they were centered in Laguna Beach, and they were, and a lot of them were coming and going between Laguna and the island, and, um, they were just turning people on, you know, they just wanted everybody to get high. And, and it wasn't even about the money. It was just about everybody getting high, I think. And so I had found myself in this position where I knew these guys and they were, then there was just like unlimited supplies of um, the, the very best, finest stuff you could smoke. And, um, living in Haleiwa and there's a lot of um, and this is this is only a few years after the end of the Vietnam War and so Schofield was like maxed with uh, enlisted soldiers but the war was over and so it was peacetime and all these guys were um, basically I mean they were they were working for the army but they were partying and they all wanted to get high and so they just um and some of them that were li- the ones that could, were able to afford to live off base were living down in Haleiwa. And they were, you know, my neighbors, quite a few military guys. And inevitably, they knew somehow that the surfers had connections to get the uh, tie sticks. And so I became the middleman and, um, and basically made some good money off of um, the U.S. military. <laughs> and... Um, was that like the same era as Jeff Hackman doing like what he was doing? Wasn't he doing a couple some years later? Couple years yeah, later. but he was he was in on the ground floor of that mm-hmm. stuff, and and these other guys. I'm not going to mention any names, but um, it was just for me. It was just a fortunate situation because I, I could just make a lot of money, and so could keep my car running. I always had new surfboards. Um, could always pay my rent and, and that was really all I cared about, you know, except for like then, then, and, and there was, uh, a little bit of a shortage of girls on the North shore at that time. The girls were a little bit hard to come by until like later on in the eighties and stuff. Why is that just too rugged? Um, like, yeah, it was like a boy's town. I don't know. There just, you know, there was, wasn't as many girls surfing then. Surfing was not as popular for the girls like it was for the guys were there because it was, the, the waves are so good. There were so many waves to ride. And, uh, um, so it was a little bit challenging. And then, it, like, you'd go out to the, um, we'd go to the Kui Lima to the disco and, and it would be, uh, what we'd call a, a sword fight. Because there'd be like three chicks or five chicks and about <clears throat> 80 guys, you know, and, and it was it was pretty funny, actually, some of the situations. So, um, but because I had a nice car to drive, a Volkswagen, 65 Volkswagen, I had good surfboards and I had a job and I was, you know, always tried to treat the women nicely. And so I had, you know, I had a couple of girlfriends here and there. Um um, when did that just, whole kind of era start to like change and, and that became not a viable option for you to continue on with that? Cause I mean, you never got in trouble for it, did you? No, no, it was just, it was so simple. It was just really too easy. Um, well, things changed around, uh, well, things for me really changed the night when I met my wife. 
and that was the night then like the end of 1979 and then she and I started dating and um um, and, and then at that time I had gotten into construction work. I was doing a little bit of construction work, which I didn't, in some ways I liked it because I was using my hands. I was learning to build houses, but didn't like it because it was cut into my surfing time. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, there was a gradual shift, uh, around that time, like in 79 where, um, I was working more and I found myself like missing out on a couple of good days here and there. And so I kind of, you know, I was starting to. Were you working more because just that whole tie stick and all the other like side um, hustles weren't really. No, I think because I like to work. I had a strong work ethic and I like to work. I mean, it's always the free money was always nice, but it's nice to earn your money too. And it's also nice to work with your hands and build stuff. And so doing construction, I learned some good skills and. Ultimately, I ended up later on building three houses. And, um, when did you buy your first house out there? 1980. So uh, this was a, like a turning point. I met my wife. How'd you meet her, by the way? Uh, in the bar in the disco at the at the which is now called Turtle Bay, but used to be called Kui Lima Hotel, which is was built. I think it was built in like 71 or something. And so when I got there, the hotel's already operating and. And they had they had this bar there, and that was the place where everybody went to drink and pick up chicks. And uh, so I went one night and ran into her, and, and I was actually it was funny because I was actually sort of interested in this other girl that was there, and I was kind of following her around, and then um, and my wife had had a few drinks in her. She was there with her roommate who was dating one of my good buddies and they just happened to be there at the bar and he introduced me to her. And so then after a little while, I'm like, Hey, let's go dance, you know, and she's drunk, you know, and I'm having a couple beers. I'm not really drunk, but she was actually legitimately drunk. And so we're dancing. And then she's, and then I danced with this other girl with the cowboy hat on and, and I could tell like she, and then she like comes out and, and she's like, kind of like trying to horn back in, you know? And so, so then at the end of the night, um, when they go, they, you know, they turn the lights on and they kick everybody out, you know, and everybody's gets to drive home. And, um, and she's a little tipsy and she had her own car there. And so I told her, I said, Hey, you know what? You're like pretty, you're pretty buzzed, aren't you? And she's like, Oh yeah, I can probably make it home. I said, why don't you? Follow me home because I live at Sunset Point and you can stay at my house and then drive to, and she, at that time she was living in Hollywood, which is like another seven miles. And so I told her, I said, Hey, just um, come stay at my house and then in the morning you can get up and then drive home. And then that way you won't have any, you know, I'm worried about you. And so she gets in her car and she follows me. And then when I go to turn right to go to my house at Sunset Point off of the highway, and then I'm thinking, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm thinking, she's just going to go straight to Holly, but she's not coming to my house. And I turn the corner and then all of a sudden I look and she's behind me. And so she, so she came to my house, followed me. Um, and then, um, so I was really nice, you know, and I said, you sleep in my bed, I'll sleep in the couch. And, and then, um, so in the morning, she got up and left early because she had to work. She's a teacher in town. 
a school, a Montessori school in town. And she had to get up early and go to do something, some kind of work in her classroom that day. And so she got my phone number off of the dial in the old days. And you had like a desktop phone <laughs> and it had the little label in the center of the dial with your number on it. She took my phone number and um, didn't like ask me for the number, but she took the number and then left. And then she called me like about a week later. And she's like, hey, you want to come over for dinner? I was like, oh, okay. So I went down to her house in Hollywood and we had dinner. And then we still, so we started dating a little bit and then um, ended up just, just ended up that we liked each other. And then, um, and then literally within two months, um, she got pregnant. Imagine that. And so, she just and she decided like right off the bat she I guess because she liked me so much and she thought I was good potential for whatever and she's like I'm we're gonna have a baby you know and you're you're either in or you're out you know what are you gonna do and I'm like well I have to think about it for a few days and so because we weren't living together yet and um, So I had some tough choices to make, and I'm still working construction and surfing, and now all of a sudden I've got this girl pregnant, and I'm like, what am I going to do? In the end, I decided that I liked her and that we were going to stick it out, and um, we were just going to move in together and see what happened. And then also at the same time, one of my buddies from Laguna, who had gotten his real estate license... And he decided that he wanted to help me buy a house. And um, he called, literally called my dad, and he, he gave my dad the sales pitch. We found this house that was that it was listed for sale. Somebody made an offer on it, and then um, he knew about this place, and he went. He took us to sh- and showed it to us, and. The lady, the, the people that owned the house, and the lady, um, like, really liked us. And she'd already signed an offer with this other realtor, and he was just going to buy it and then just flip it, you know. And three-bedroom house, and this is in 1980, three-bedroom house for $90,000. And, like, literally, like, a block away from the beach at Feeland. And uh, so... Um, she told us, she said, you know, I really like you people. I don't even know you, but I like you. And I want you guys to have this house. And so we're going to, we're going to make it arrangements to just get rid of this other deal. And I want you to make an offer on it. And so this guy, Tim French was my, my realtor guy. And, and I had worked for this guy for the last couple of years doing uh, different things. And, um, he knew that I was reliable and he knew that I was uh, dependable and like, you know, and he just, he told me, he goes, you know, you're, you're going to buy a house, you know, don't waste your money on rent any, anymore, you know? And so he called my dad and he convinced my dad to help me come up with the down payment for this house and actually had money from my grandmother when my grandmother died and left like Teresa and her brothers and sisters and me and my brother um, left money for all of us to go to college. And because I ran away from home and barely graduated high school, 
and went straight into into working and I didn't go to college. And so I had this money just sitting in this account here in California. And my dad said, well, you know, Ricky, you've got this money in this college savings account and it looks like you're not going to go to college. So maybe we'll just use it as, you know, you really think it's a good idea. We'll buy a house. And, and my dad had already um, bought several houses in the South Bay. He'd like bought and sold a few houses. So he was familiar with, with the real estate, you know, and, and capital appreciation. And, um, so bought a house. I'm like 22 years old and I've got a pregnant girlfriend and we're moving in together into this house that we just bought at V-Land and, um, working construction and, um, so that was kind of a turning point. So then 1981, uh, let's see, Aaron was born in the end of 1980. And so then we had this beautiful baby girl and um, things are going pretty good and we're getting along pretty good and we haven't killed each other yet. And um, um, One day I was somewhere and there's the, the newspaper, the Honolulu advertiser, and there's a story on the front page about all these drownings. Like people, there've been like three or four drownings in one week, you know? And, and during the set and during the seventies, <coughs> was like a boom time in Waikiki. Like that's when they built the majority of the hotels in Waikiki were built in the mid to late seventies. And, uh, tourism was booming. A lot of people and a lot of, there was, you know, Plane, the, the plane flights were cheap, the airfares were cheap, and they were, they were adding more flights, and there was more hotel rooms, and they were trying to, you know, boost it up and get more tourists into Waikiki and Hawaii. And so people were drowning, and the lifeguard service, which was still pretty um, in its infants, infancy, I guess you could say, um, they didn't have enough lifeguards to cover all the beaches. And in Oahu, you know, so many beautiful beaches on Oahu, and there's got to be like 300 different surf spots on Oahu, and it's just an amazing place for surfing and for swimming. Um, so people were drowning, lifeguards were shorthanded, and the end of the article said, oh, the city and county currently wants to hire 30 new lifeguards. So I saw that, and... You know, growing up in Hermosa, and we always kind of idolized the lifeguards. And, and the lifeguard, like the guys who took the lifeguard test and passed, it was always like a big deal, you know. And so, and we were in June, Roddy and I were both in junior lifeguards when we were kids. And so I had that kind of background, and um, I called the. Um, lifeguard service to find out about the tryouts and so they said no oh, it would be to Alamana Park this Saturday and be there at 9 o'clock and you can do the swim and see how, do you, how you do so I show up and there's about 45 guys there and, and we all do the um, swim test and I came in second place and uh, so one of the guys who I think was one of the captains at that time, and, and he pulled, kind of pulled me off the side and he goes, hey, you, you're a good swimmer and you look like you're pretty, you know, pretty good in the water. And they, and they, they knew right away. They knew I was a surfer and they knew that the surfers were the guys that made the best lifeguards. And so 
he had told me, he goes, Hey, you know, we, we really, we really need to hire some people like you. And, um, you know, I'd like to invite you to, to come to, to the recruit class and try it out, you know, and see if you like it. So thought about it for a couple of days and I was like, yeah, fuck, I'll give it a try. So then I went in the recruit class and the next thing I know, they fucking handed me a rescue tube and a pair of fins and a pair of shorts and first aid kit. And they're sending me to work at Hollyba. This is in September of 81. And, uh, so I worked there for about three weeks, like a couple days a week. And then they started giving me extra days and like worked a couple days at Waimea and worked a day at sunset. And then, um, and so then after I worked like three or four weeks and the captain comes one day and he's like, Hey, Williams, I need, um, I need a guy to work on the weekends at Aokai. You want to try it out? And, and, you know, and I, then Aokai's pipeline, right? And I was like, fuck, he wants me to go and work at pipeline. And so I'm kind of like hesitate for a second, you know, and then I looked at him and, and this guy was big Hawaiian guy, Captain Joe Mills. And he just like, he's the kind of guy that commanded so much respect, you know, because of just who he was and how he was, he was a Hawaiian guy, but he was really, uh, he looked kind of fearsome, but he was really gentle, you know, and he was just an awesome, awesome character. He was my first, he was my first captain for like the first 15 years and, um, greatest guy that you ever worked for. Um, but he's, you know, like, Hey, you want to try it out? And I was like, uh, okay, I'll try it out. You know? And so he sent me out there. Um, and that was it. Started working at Aokai and he, and I was working with these two other guys who were just like legendary watermen and, what were they, their names? Who were they? Uh, one guy was Sean Ross, and he was a, he was a pipo boarder and a body surfer. And he was he used to go out in big pipe and ride it on this plywood pipo board. And then the other guy was Steve Colbreth, and he was uh, um, just an exceptional surfer. And he was built like uh, like the Bionic Man. We used to call him the Bionic Man because he was just so strong. And these and these guys were had. They were, you know, they were older than me by five, six, seven years, and they had so much experience, and they were just really like tuned into pipeline. And um, and this is after Butch Van Artsdalen, right, who was the original lifeguard at Pipeline, and so they were like kind of like the next era after Butch. And then there were two other guys, Mark Cunningham and Terry Ahui, that were working there like on the weekdays, and then. At that time, all the full-time lifeguards were working on the weekdays, and then the part-timers like me, when I started, and everyone starts part-time, would work on the weekends. And then somebody figured out that the part-timers were doing like 80% of the rescues because all the, all the action was on the weekends, pretty much. And so we were getting, we were getting the job done. And uh, so... They uh, they switched it around. They made it so that all the full-timers had to start working one day on the weekends just to, so they'd have more experienced people there on the weekends and stuff. But um, the first couple of years, it was just us three. We were all three part-timers. But those guys were so good, and they were 
you know, and they used to give me some shit. And they was I was the young guy, and I was the rookie, and they ended up me doing you know the dirty work and putting up the signs and carrying shit out and, and stuff. But they were really good teachers, and they really taught me a lot about pipeline and about how to like survival in big surf, basically. Can we talk a little bit about that? I mean, that's something I think that's super interesting. I mean, because sitting there and watching pipe, you become an expert on seeing conditions change, um, the tides doing this as well as doing that. So you can anticipate what kind of circumstances somebody who might not be experienced might find themselves in. So, for example, seeing a tourist on the beach, like what was an average rescue like? Or was there even an average rescue? Well, it changes so fast and the, the conditions change throughout the day and it's always different. And there's also like you go to the recruit class and you read the book on life, life-saving manual and you learn the skills and you really are not prepared for what it's actually like out in the field, you know, um, because every situation is different. Every victim's different. Conditions are different. And so you really have to just remember a few basic rules and then just, and then just like cross your fingers and just hope it turns out well. But you know, you just, you basically, you want to have always have a flotation device, whether it's a rescue tube or surfboard or rescue board and just let the white water push you back into the beach. And, and it's easy to say that, to sit here and say that here, but when in actual practice, like, you're going to get battered around and you're going to get blasted. and Usually with a victim. Yeah, and, and you just got to hang on and hope that you don't like, hit your head and get knocked out. Um, so I had, you know, early on I had some situations where I got scared and where I got, you know, just got slammed around a little bit. But ultimately I was good swimmer and I can handle myself and keep calm and keep it under control and um, just learned I learned to do whatever it needed to be done at that time and, and also and then also too like not just dealing with things in the water but you'd have medical cases and first aid cases and car accidents and one day I was sitting there with Steve Colbreth and and we're sitting there, and it's, and it's a nice, quiet, peaceful day, and it's on the weekend, the waves are small, and all of a sudden this lady runs up with a like two-year-old uh, little boy in her arms that's covered with blood from head to toe, and he'd just been bitten in the face by a dog, you know. And and, and it looked, at, the, at that instant, it looked really severe, you know, but then... Um, you have to train yourself to like take a deep breath and calm down and not to get overexcited just like by the side of that much blood, you know, because everything initially bleeds out and gets covered with blood. And then you actually have to feel like get in there and make an assessment to see where, you know, how big the wound is and actually where it's coming from. And, and, and the most important thing of all to remember is not only for yourself to keep breathing, but to make sure that your victim is breathing. And if, you know, every, as long as they're breathing and they don't stop breathing, then everything's going to turn out fine, basically. But when they stop breathing, then you got to do CPR. Um, then it gets a little heavier. I think just for the audience who doesn't serve understands, pipeline the North Shore is on the North Shore of Hawaii is one of the heaviest waves in the world, the scariest waves in the world by the way it breaks and for him to have to swim out 
in the situations where the waves are giant, breaking in very shallow water with the victim. I mean, that's a very complicated, complex rescue that he had to do on a weekly basis, sounds like. It can be pretty scary. Believe it or not, most of <clears throat> the rescues are made on smaller days when when the waves are, when it's friendlier looking and there's more people that are actually going in the water. And, and you get days in the wintertime when the sandbar's out and there'll be these little channels and rip currents and keyholes in the sandbar. And we had days where we'd make like 10 or 15 rescues in one day. And it's only like a three or four foot day. So the bigger days, you get heavier rescues that would take longer to perform. But the smaller days, you get more rescues that would be easier. But, you know, but the rescue is a rescue. And anybody that's panicking can go down in an instant. And so your job is to not to let that happen. Yeah. Yeah. So you're working part time. Um, and making enough to support your family, or were you still doing like construction and then working as a lifeguard? Um, it's you know living in Hawaii, the cost of living, and especially nowadays, is so it's, the cost of living is so much higher than it is anywhere else in the country. And you just you do whatever you can do to make money and survive. And so I uh, was had my lifeguard money coming in, um, not doing the construction anymore. Uh, my wife was went back to work after you know when Aaron was about like a year and a half I think she started she found, she found this lady that needed a teacher and she said well I've got this you know I've got a little baby and she's like just bring her you can you know just bring her to the classroom she'll fit right in and so so um, she went back to work and. You know, and back then, like our mortgage was only like four hundred and fifty bucks or something, so it wasn't like a huge amount to come up with, and so we were doing okay. And uh, then gradually, then I got after um, uh, three and a half years, I got full time, and then I went on salary. And I was making more money. But I started out, believe it or not, I just, it's like it seems incredible every time I think about it, but. They were paying me like five seventy five an hour to go out and risk my life in giant surf, you know. And just like it doesn't even really make sense now, <clears throat> but that's that was the reality back then. And 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 the more I went down there, and the more experience I got, and the and the more situations I was in, and the more I liked it, you know, and I started to thrive on it, and it's like you get this little adrenaline rush every time something happens, and and you kind of just, like, I was just into it, and I liked it, you know, and I liked the guys that I was working with, and we, they became my family, basically. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you did 34 years. <laughs> That's incredible. And you've been now retired three. What's retirement treated you like? Are you enjoying it? I mean, do you miss it? Um, no, because I still go down there a lot and surf, and I can go down there whenever I feel like it and hang out and then and, and split and go home and take a nap or whatever, you know, or go back and do yard work and then come back down and surf later or whatever. Um, I'm enjoying it, and I'm, it's allowing me to do. I have free time to do other things. And, um, what are some of your passions and hobbies? Um, 
aside from organic surfing. farming. I'm growing, you know, I have a farm. I'm growing uh, avocados, bananas, and uh, growing cacao and making chocolate and growing vanilla and um, all kinds of other tropical fruits. And I sell a lot of my stuff. I wholesale to restaurants and I make money from that. Um, I like riding my bike in the mountains. Um, so at this point, you have a surfing. big property overlooking. North oh, North. yeah. No, I've been up there like 30 years now. We've lived in the same uh, property for 30 years. And, um, and that was, you know, I bought the original house in 1980. 1983, we bought another vacant lot and started building a house on it. And then we moved in there in 85. And then uh, sold the first house and bought this property where we live now. And... Um, 87, I think, we started building a house and then moved in like at the end of 88. So, yeah, basically I'm living in a house that I built uh, pretty much by myself. And so I did have some good helpers initially when we framed it. It's a really cool story, man. I think you have lived a life where, I mean, you really designed it for yourself from start, well, start yeah, to start. Well, yeah, I mean... I- it's not like I planned anything out, though. I mean, things just happened. They just fell into place, you know. And I think um, I must have done something in a former lifetime that was really great or substantial because I've had really good fortune in this lifetime and have had so many amazing experiences, you know. Even just this week down in Mexico, three days ago, was just in, in a situation where it was just like it's incredible I was in this this place in the mountains in the middle of nowhere in southern Mexico that felt like I was had stepped back up in time like 150 years and uh, it was awesome and you know and, and just the waves the waves that I get every time I go down there and, and other surf trips and um Places every literally everywhere I've gone on the planet, I've scored good waves at one time or another. And Australia, Bali, Costa Rica, Fiji. Got to go and work at Tavarua for like eleven years. Um, and um, in Hawaii, in the outer islands, in Hawaii. Um, been to Jay Bay a couple times, which is incredible. And uh, just like, so it's almost overwhelming when I think about all the stuff that I've done and all the places I've been and still, and, and still manage to keep everything together at home too. Um, and have a career for 34 years. Like, I don't know how I did it all. If you could give your younger self advice. I mean, even advice to the audience, somebody who's stuck in a situation they're not stoked on and they're looking for a, a way to motivate themselves to get out of it and move forward. Like, what would you say to them? Well, I I don't think I, in my own life experience, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't change anything. You know, I mean, I really, everything happens for a reason and every experience that you have is, um, is a lesson for you. There's lessons in it, and um, and so, and sometimes negative experiences can have 
the most positive influence on your attitude and on your future. Um, but um, um, what advice would I give to other people? Just, you know, tomorrow's a new day. Um, don't be afraid to try new things. You know, like what if when the captain asked me if I wanted to go to work at Aokai, if I'd said no, you know, my life would have gone in a totally different direction. Um, and I did, you know, throughout my career, I didn't just work at Aokai. I got to work at Sunset, like one day a week, two days a week, and work at my man. Worked at Sandy Beach for like five months. And um, saw some gnarly stuff. I've probably seen like 25 dead bodies, different you know, situations, drownings, cardiac arrest, car accidents, medical emergencies. Um, what else would I, what advice would I give to people? Set goals for yourself. You know, I've always been big on like setting a goal, like say tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm going to do this, or I'm going to accomplish this, or I'm going to build this, or I'm going to go here and ride these waves or whatever. But to just to kind of plan ahead and set goals for yourself and try to accomplish some little thing every day. And, uh, and to, and to treat people with respect, you know, and especially like growing up in Hawaii and learning, you know, being a member of the minority, I think it taught me a certain amount of humility and, and how to be humble and how to be, um, how to become a listener and not just, uh, um, try to boss people around or take control of people. You just, you want to just focus on yourself and, but be there and be available for people when you when they need you, especially like your family and stuff and your friends. I think that's um, beautifully said, man. I think you know before we we started this conversation, you said you wanted to give a big shout out to the North Shore Lifeguard Association. You're a big advocate of you know people learning how to swim and the Junior Lifeguard Association. And you know I know Ruka is a, a big supporter of that over in on the North Shore. Pat Tenori, the founder of Ruka, I think is a big influence over there for what you just, you know, really believe in. Yeah. Um, swimming is key to any, any kind of water sports, you know, and especially surfing. And, uh, um, I believe it or not, I've rescued dozens of people that paddle out on surfboards and then they break their leash, you know, or they lose a board for whatever reason. And they don't even know how to swim. And all of a sudden, they get in a situation where they, you know, they're in, in like sometimes life-threatening situation, and that always blows my mind. But um, really fortunate that my parents sent me to swimming lessons when I was six years old and made me go, you know, two times a week to go and swim in that cold pool, <laughs> <laughs> and because it really paid off in the end, you know. And, and I'm also really thankful that I was able my life turned out so well and i have had so many great experiences and been able to financially support my family without ever having gone to college i mean i did i went to college at one point for about two months and i dropped out just because it didn't, didn't just wasn't in the cards at that time it's not for everybody that's for sure yeah i want to thank you my brother for coming on it's been a pleasure hearing your story and i know somebody will be inspired by it and take that next step I hope so. Much enjoy sharing my experiences with people and uh, wish everybody tons of aloha.
Much love. Awesome. What a cool story. Thank you, Rick, for sharing that with us. I mean, he's just such a gentle, open human being. I liked, I liked how his story flowed, and he gave us really in, good insight into all the little steps he took and twists and turns that happened in order to design the life that he wanted. Um, with that said, you know, please feel free to follow me on Instagram as I venture off. I'm leaving tomorrow, and I'll be posting a lot more on Instagram so you can kind of see the steps that I'm taking to design the life that I want. I'll be going to Charleston first, then I'll be going to Prague and riding my bicycle with my father um, to Dresden, and then I'm heading to Thailand. So you can kind of start tracking those steps along the way via Instagram, Misfits and Rejects on Instagram. And if you want to support Misfits and Rejects, you can do it on Patreon. Any donation helps. Subscribe to Misfits and Rejects on your podcast player. Comment on your podcast player. All super helpful. And I really hope that you know you get something out of these episodes that I do with these cool people. There's a lot more coming. Thailand's going to bring some really colorful, beautiful people. And until then, I think you all are also so very beautiful. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.